Thank you. What a great word, right? Take it all, but just give me Jesus. I hope that's what we're all striving for. I hope that's why we're all here. Take it all away. It's meaningless. But man, leave me Jesus. You can have all this world, but but leave me Jesus, right? Oh, we're so fortunate. It's good to be with you guys. If you were here last week, we, we did what we um, did back in the book of Galatians. We had a reading for the book of Ephesians. And it was pretty wild and it was pretty incredible. And I hope you enjoyed that. It's, it's something that I always encourage the church to do is to try to read things in their entirety. And sometimes that's harder with some of the bigger books. But certainly being able to read six chapters of Ephesians in one sitting is, is not overly complex, right? It just takes a little bit of time. So we did that as a church. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't take some time to thank those that led us through that time. So I just want to say thank you to Pastor Doug and to Michael Camarena for introducing the the book to us. I wanted to thank the readers. Chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians was uh, Karen Thompson and Hayden Ryder. Thank you. Uh, Ephesians 3 and 4, Bobby Rogers and Kevin Christie. Thank you. Chapters 5 and 6, Susan Rosenthal and Roger Block. Thank you. And I also want to thank Russ Marzoff, who, uh, one of our elders who led us in communion. Thank you, Russ. And then for the, the worship team that was up here for all 70 minutes during our reading, Thank you, Ryan Shoemaker and Ryan Stark and Brooklyn Rondeau, Mark Bell and Karen Thompson. Let's just give all of them a a thank you. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do a background and an overview of the entire uh, six chapters of Ephesians before we... Huh, this is weird. A letter for the Rock Community Church... I'm so I'm so sorry, everybody. This is I, I, well, not really, but I'll find the person who is. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Stacy. I really appreciate. Ah, so weird. These postal workers are so dedicated to their job, and apparently they don't know churches meet on Sundays. I don't I don't know what's going on here. Oh, it's a, it's a letter uh, to the Rock Community Church, and. The return address is from Paul in a, in a Roman jail cell. We'll just read that later. Is that all right? You, got, you guys want to read that now? You sure? It's just, it's just a letter from Paul to, to us as a church. Should I read it now? All right, I'll read it now. You guys talked me into it. From Paul, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ our Lord by the will of God the Father. To all the saints located at the Rock Community Church in the city of Anaheim Hills, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank the Lord for you daily, Paul writes, as I remember you always in my prayers. I commend you for your continued faithfulness to the Lord, to one another, and to His work in the region of North Orange County. Church, Keep on persevering in your love and service and prayers for each other. Especially keep on persevering in your prayers for the shepherds among you, the elders, the trustees, and especially that Pastor Mark guy. Paul's so funny. Really funny, Paul. Thank you for your diligence in feeding the saints who gather there as they are fed in the sanctuary as well as the cafe. 
Thank you to all who teach the children each week knowing that you are helping to raise the next generation of leaders to know our Lord, to serve our Lord, to glorify our Lord and to advance His purposes. Thank you to all those who lead and gather in small groups in order to increase their understanding of God and grow in sanctification and holiness and refrain from sinful habits and desires. May the Lord bless and keep all those that serve behind the scenes in various ministries, the ushers, the greeters, the welcome table, the tech team, the worship team, the helping hands ministry, the first responders prayer ministry, global missions, rock of ages, and more. Thank you. Greetings as well from Pastor John, who reminds you and encourages you to always remember that you are the Lord's church. At one time, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, made all of us alive together with Christ. So I challenge you, Rock Community Church, to also be rich in mercy, to be rich in love, and to remember that you are partners with the Lord in helping others to be made alive alive in Christ as well. As Jesus Himself reminds us when He said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Isn't that a nice letter? I'd be anxious if I got a letter from Paul who wrote on behalf of our Lord. I'd want to read it too. And you and I was done reading it, you, don't, you know what I'd want to do? I, I'd want to read it again. And when I got done reading it again, I'd probably want to read it again. And then I'd look for things that were especially meaningful to me or, or that were ministering to me in that letter. And so that's just my silly way of introducing a letter. The Lord has written to us in His Word letters and discourses. And I hope with some sense of pride and joy and anticipation that that's how we attack God's Word to say, Lord, thank you for this letter that you wrote. Thank you for affirming us. Thank you for challenging us. It's a little silly, but I just thought it was important to do. Didn't Stacy do a great job delivering the mail? Yeah. She's actually a, a legit mail carrier. And so I knew that, and I asked her if she'd be willing to play along, and she said, of course. So, uh, so sweet. And I says, interrupt me however you want. Surprise me and... I don't know what she was saying, but I loved it. First service this morning, my wife was here at the 9 a.m., and so in the cafe she said, um, so who wrote that letter? And I'm like, what up with that? I wrote it. She's like, no, no, I did. Don't laugh. You can laugh. And then she says, well, who came up with the idea? And I'm like, I came up with the I get no credit for my creativity, I'm telling you. And I think she thinks I'm lying, which is fine. I'm okay with that. So fun. So, there's something called the prison letters or the prison epistles. If you know that, you may not know that. Paul wrote some letters while he was in prison. Do you know which letters those were by any chance? Ephesians is one of them. What are the other three? Does anybody know? Philippians, Colossians, and then one's written to an individual. Philemon. Yeah, not Timothy. Philemon. It's on the screen. He wrote these captivity letters or prison letters or prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And as we can see from this list, three of them were bound for churches that Paul had founded 
on his second of three missionary journeys. Paul was always concerned for the souls of those he continually prayed for in those churches that he founded. And his letters reflect his pastor's heart, his pastor's love, his concern for his spiritual children. And so while these epistles, those four, clearly reflect Paul's position as a prisoner of Rome, he, in those letters, makes it very clear that his captivity was first and foremost to who? To God. He mentions that he's in prison in all four of those letters, but primarily, put those reference verses up. You can look at these later. In these four verses, in each one of those prison letters, he declares, I am a prisoner, not of Rome. I am a prisoner of the Lord. Ugh. Sometimes when we study and learn about Paul, it just makes me a little uncomfortable. Because that guy lived out every tenet of his faith for our Lord. And it challenges me. And so he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord more than I'm a prisoner of Rome. And so the Lord had told Paul in Acts chapter 23 that he was going to be a prisoner in Rome for the purpose of spreading the gospel in the Gentile capital of Rome. And so Paul's time in captivity is no less profitable for us today than it was for the church back then. And so that's this letter. Paul writes this letter to us from a cell while in prison, still thinking of his church, still feeding the sheep, still protecting the sheep. What love. What a shepherd. About Ephesus... We're going to put a map up, and, and I've got to warn you that the map is going to be pretty worthless for you. So if you guys can all come up here so you can see it better, that'd be great. It's in this like uh, orange part where it says Asia, and to the left, about two-thirds down, is Ephesus, where those red arrows point. It's, it's uh, modern-day uh, Turkey is where Ephesus was located. And Ephesus was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. At the time, it was the fourth largest city in the world with a population of around 250,000. It was a political, religious, and commercial epicenter in Asia Minor. This flourishing city was one with multiple religions, multiple gods, and multiple goddesses. In fact, there was a great, huge pagan temple dedicated to the goddess... Anybody know? Diana, or Artemis, was in Ephesus. And so associated with the ministries of Paul and Timothy and John, Ephesus played a significant role in the spread of Christianity. And you can see that on the map, that it was part of his missionary journey. And Paul made the city a center of evangelistic and church-building ministry, spending about three years there. Acts 19 and 20 shows us that, that he spent about three years establishing churches, knowing that that was a hub to different parts of the world. And so it was very natural for a letter that was intended for a wide readership in Asia Minor to have Ephesus as its main destination. With that, let's pray. God, we, we thank You that You send us letters to display Your love and Your provision for us. Thank You, through Paul, that You wrote to us this epistle called Ephesians. Lord, when we encounter Your Word, may we, may we sit, may we read it, the entire letter, and get a glimpse, Lord, of 
the depths of your love for us, the things that you've done for us, the things that you've called us to, so that we can give you all the praise and glory that's due your name. Lord, have your way with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. So, as you turn to Ephesians, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn there. As Michael Camarina pointed out last week when he gave a brief overview, Ephesians, if you recall from last week, is divided up into two components, right? Chapters 1 through 3 was a component, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 was another component. Chapters 1 through 3 is theological, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 are practical. Theological, practical. Another way to remember that is doctrine and duty, or word and walk, or reality and response, right? Theological, practical. Doctrine, duty. Word, walk. Reality and response. They have to go together. We can't just be full of doctrine and not do anything with it. And we can't just try to be practical with not knowing what we're supposed to do. Both of those need to go together. And so as followers of Christ, we learn doctrine so it'll change our lives. It'll change how we go about our walk in trying to be Christ-like. Okay? So, Isaiah 29.13 even talks about that, where the Lord's disappointment when He says through Isaiah... Now, because this people, they, they draw near with their words, they honor me with their lip service, but their hearts are not calibrated. And so he says, I'm going to have to do something about it. We have to do both. We have to have doctrine and duty. We can't just give the Lord lip service. His doctrine has to be manifested in our duty, in our walk. And so what I find fascinating is, look how Paul starts and finishes this letter called Ephesians. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not. Most people aren't, but there's something called... Writers will sometimes do what's called bracketing. And so they, they start a thought and end a thought with the same saying basically the same thing. So it can be a, a, a paragraph of Scripture, it can be a chapter of Scripture, it can be a whole book where they start with the thought and end with the same thought. Check this out. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 1. Paul an apostle of Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Why doesn't he just stop there? To the saints who are at Ephesus. Oh, that's me. Oh, no. There's a word and right after that. And who are faithful in Christ. That's who this letter is for. Not just those who are at Ephesus, but also those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Oh, so it's not just that I'm at church. It's that I'm faithful in what God has called me to. That's who this letter's for. Look at the end of chapter 6, how he concludes in verse 24. <laughs> Same thing. Grace be with all those who do what? Who belong to Ephesus? No. Who will love our Lord with an incorruptible love. Are you a faithful saint and do you love God with an incorruptible love? Are you a faithful saint, and do you love the Lord with an incorruptible love? Let me ask you this. What can corrupt your love for God? It happens to a lot of people. What can corrupt your love for God? Things. The enemy wants to put things in our path to corrupt our love for God. And so this letter, this is a serious letter. It's for those who are faithful, who have an incorruptible love. If that's not you, this letter's probably not for you, you can argue. 
Because it's for the faithful people at Ephesus who have an incorruptible love. God's Word is for those people. And that's you. And, I, he, and, and go back to chapter 1. In, in verse 15 of chapter 1, he kind of brings a nice, uh, uh, he kind of puts this all together, if you will. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, For this reason, Paul writes, I too, having heard of the faith that you have in the Lord, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. It's a faithful love. It's an incorruptible love for God and for one another. Mm, That's what we're challenged to. I love it. So, we're going to do one chapter at a time, real quick. And each chapter has a, a heading that I made up. Now remember, the first three are more theological. The last three chapters are more practical. And so we're going to focus on the things that He does for us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then we're going to look at our response, if you will, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Does that make sense? Chapter 1. Let's put that up there. He made us rich. He made us rich. We are poor. We are destitute. We are broken without God. And He says, you know what? You're poor. But I'm going to make you rich. Because without me, you're nothing. Apart from Him, we are nothing, Scripture says. He made us rich. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of Christ, who has blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As a parent, I want to bless my kids with every blessing I can bestow upon them. Don't we want to do that for our children? I want to bless them with every blessing I could possibly give them because I love them. And so He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. We are enriched. He does that for us. Well, how has He done that? What does that look like? What has He done? Well, He goes on to tell us in chapter 1. And it's going to be verses... There's five things He did for us to make us rich. Five things. It's going to be in verses 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. The odd-numbered verses. Check this out. Let's go to verse 5. Here's the first thing that He did to make us rich. He predestined us to adoption as sons. He adopted us. I'm not adopted. I haven't adopted children. I'm sure some people here perhaps have been adopted or have adopted others. If I'm an orphan and somebody adopts me, that's a pretty special day. That's got to be a pretty special day. To be parentless, if you will, and for somebody to adopt me, to love me, to take me to their family. God did that for us. I'm without a Heavenly Father and He adopts me. Are you kidding me? He made us rich. He adopts us. Look at verse 7. Here's the second thing that He does. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. He redeemed us. We were guilty. We had a sin penalty to pay that we could not pay. A debt that was insurmountable. And He says, I got it. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pay that debt. Wow, you're going to adopt me and you're going to pay my debt. Are you kidding me? And then here's the third thing in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He begins to speak truth to us. He pours His Holy Spirit into us so we can understand His Word for us so that He can grow us up into maturity. He makes known to us the mystery of His will. He pulls back, if you will, uh, Himself and He allows us to see Him and to understand Him. And then in verse 11, we see the fourth thing that He does. He says, We have obtained an inheritance. He doesn't just adopt us and say, well, as my adopted child, you're just my adopted child. You don't get anything in my inheritance, but at least I've adopted you. No. He says, you also partake in the inheritance of my riches. Oh, my goodness. 
And then the fifth thing he does in verse 13, the end of that second half, having believed, you were sealed in Him. He puts His seal upon us and He says to the world, these are My people. And He fills us with the Holy Spirit which empowers us and helps us and comes alongside us so that we can live for Him in a way that is pleasing to Him. Amen? Mm. And then Paul prays according to these riches. Look at verse 18 where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you and I will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in us, His saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power for those of us who believe in Him. Is that incredible? He, (laughs) if you didn't know you were rich, go home and call all your friends and family and say, I'm rich! I'm rich! Really, how did that happen? Christ died on the cross for me. And you can point to those five things in verses uh, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13 and tell your friends and family why you're rich. It's amazing. Chapter 2. So He made us rich and He also made us alive. He made us rich and He, He made us alive. Look at verse 1. And you were what? And you were what? You were dead. I showed up at Richard and Marsha's house and there was Richard. He was dead. That's it. It's over. And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, it says. Continue reading that verse. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. See, it's not just that we were dead, but Paul tells us how we were dead. We're dead on three... There's three influences that kill us. Our flesh. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So even if you're locked up away from the world, because that's mentioned in verse 2, away from the world, away from Satan, you will be dead in your trespasses and sins because it's part of your sinful nature. But on top of that, you're thrown into a sinful world, and on top of that, there's somebody called Satan or the devil that wants to wipe you out as well. In other words, you're dead. You have no hope. You're dead. But He made us alive. Look what verse 4 says. But who? But who? But God! He's rich, right? He's rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. He makes us alive. Check out. Keep reading. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. And so then I can say to Richard, you were dead. Richard, wake up. You're alive, never to die again. He did that. There's nothing we can do about that. It's what He does for us. Our sin, this world, and our enemy called Satan has killed us. We don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance against any one of them, but especially all three of them. God does that for us. He makes us rich. He makes us alive. And as a result, because of that, if Richard's dead and suddenly he's alive, is he a new creation? Yes! He was just dead a few seconds ago. Now he's alive. 
So as a result of what God did, check this out. Look at what verse 10 tells us. For we now are His work. We're His workmanship. We are created because we were dead. Now we're alive. We're created in Christ to now do good works. To now be the church that He's called us to be. Because we are His. We were created. We were made alive. And so God says, now follow me and do works for me. Advance my purposes. It's powerful stuff. And lastly, in the rest of that chapter, from verse 11 all the way to verse 22, Paul tells us who was dead in their sins that Christ made alive. And he essentially points to two people groups in those verses from 11 to 22. Who are the two people groups that were dead to Christ? Jews and Gentiles. Who do the Jews and Gentiles represent? Everybody. In other words, all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us walked in this worldly place. All of us had Satan pressing in upon us. All of us were dead. But God saved us. But God made us alive. Look at verses 16 through 21. That He might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away. That's the Gentile. And peace to those who were near. Both of us needed to be preached this peace, Jew and Gentile. For through Him we both have our access to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and we are part of God's household. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Chapter 3, the other thing he did for us. So not only does he make us rich, not only does he make us alive, but he has his grace for us. He extends his grace to us. Look at verses 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, for the sake of you Gentiles, hmm, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship that God's, I'm stewarding what God's given me, The stewardship of what? Of God's grace which was given to me for you. God's grace is for us. And he gave it through Paul. Check out verses 7 and 8. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me for you. Verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given so that I can preach it to the Gentiles. Because Peter was doing work with the Jews. What is this grace? What is this grace? Well, verse 6 tells us. To be specific, verse 6 says, to be specific, here's, here's the grace. that The Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers. Those are three different things that we don't have time to unpack here. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers. We are all one in Christ. Oh, It's a picture of beauty. But how? If you picked up, how did this grace, right? If God's grace is for us, how does this grace get extended to us? Check it out. Look at verse 8. He says, to me, I'm the least of all saints. But to me, God gave me this grace to do what with it? To preach it. 
God wants to extend His grace to people, and He picks people to do that through. He says to Paul, preach my grace. And look at verse 9. He says, to bring to light. And then in verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. He uses us. His grace for us is extended through us to others. It's what He chose Paul for, and it's what He chooses us for, and it's what the responsibility He's given to us as a church. That He extends His grace for us through one another. It's just the way it is. You say, well, why does God need our help? I don't know. But it's just what He does. He extends His grace through us to other people. I will always say it's a high calling to be the church. It's a huge responsibility. As we wrap up chapter 3, there's brackets again. Remember, so chapters 1, 2, and 3 is a section, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 are a section. Look how he brackets 1, 2, and 3. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. This is all the things that God does and is for us. Check out verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has done that for us. And he concludes this section the same way in verse 20. Now to him who was able to do <laughs> far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's what he does. That's who he is. To him. Now to him who is able. Our God is able to do what? To do far more abundantly beyond all that we may ask or think. According to the power that works within us. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Check it out. It's one of the most intriguing verses in Scripture for me. Let me tell you why. Verse 20. If he said, now to him who was able to do all that we ask or think. I left out some words there. You saw that, right? Now to him who was able to do all that we ask or think. Okay, so I serve a God. Listen. That's able to do all that I could ask or even think. Meaning, I might not even ask for those things. So if I can sit here for however many days, however many years, and ask and think, he can do all of that. Whatever you can think of and whatever you can ask of, that's how capable our God is. If all that verse said was to him who was able to do all that we ask or think. But to make his point, what does Paul do? I'm going to work it backwards from there. Now to him who was able to do beyond all that we can ask or think. That's just one word I'm adding. To him who can do beyond all that we can ask or think. Wow, that's a pretty special God. Oh, but there's a word before beyond. Abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Wow, this is getting pretty impressive, Paul. Paul's like, wait, there's still more, right? More abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Oh, wow, that, that, that's a really big God. Paul's like, I'm not done. Far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. You get an idea of who our God is? Oh, my goodness. That's the guy that adopted us. That's the God that adopted us. That's the God that made us rich. That's the God that made us alive. That's the God that extends grace to us. Are you kidding me? And I'm telling you, if you don't do it here, find a place to drop to your knees when you understand that more and more. To just drop to your knees and say, thank you, God, for doing that for me. Are you kidding me? So good. Chapter 4. So now... Right? That's what He did for us. And so now 4, 5, and 6 is what? Our duty, our walk, our response. Our walk for Him. We're going to look at 
four things. First one, we are to walk in unity. We got the screen for this one? We are to walk in unity. We are to walk in unity. Check out verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with, with which you have been called. You've been called, church. And so, because you're called, we are called to walk in a worthy manner. Are we walking in a worthy manner? Well, the first one he talks about is unity. With all, <laughs> This is what it's going to take. If we're going to walk in unity, it's going to take humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. I'm sure many of you tolerate me. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Verses 4, 5, and 6. There's one body. There's one Spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. And there's one God and Father. We are called to unity, church. And so that means then, if we're not in unity, if unity's broken somehow, somebody's in sin. If unity's broken, somebody's in sin. If unity is broken, somebody's in sin. Because we're called to unity. And so if unity's broken, somebody's in sin. It's just the way it is. And so I have to deal with that. Second, we're to walk in our gifting. We're to walk in our gifting. Look at verses 11 through 16. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service so that the body of Christ is strong and healthy. It's built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God in our measure is Christ's, is what it says at the end of 13. As a result, see, when we're functioning in unity, when we're functioning in our gifting, then we don't have to worry about these things as a result. We don't have to be like little children, tossed here and there by waves and and carried about by different types of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We don't have to worry about that. Verse 16, the whole body is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All of us have a huge role in the Lord's work. Each and every one of you. It's imperative. It's imperative that we know in our walk that we're to be unified, that we're to walk in our gifting. It's what He's called us to. So He bestows upon us all these great things and He just says, walk in unity. Walk in your gifting. The third thing is we're to walk in obedience. We are to walk in obedience. Look at verse 17. He says, that you no longer in the middle, no longer walk in the futility of their mind as the Gentiles walk. And at the end of 18, 18, he says, because of their hardness of heart. We are to walk in obedience. We are to no longer walk as the Gentiles because of their hardness of heart. When we're not calibrated right, when we're being disobedient, it's because our hearts are hard. That's really what those verses say. So we're to walk in obedience. And that just requires us to really pay attention to what goes on in our heart. To really know how to examine our heart. To have how others examine our hearts. Whatever it takes to make sure that our heart is right. Because when it's not right, that's what happens. Because of the hardness 
of heart. Disobedience is rarely because we don't know. It's almost always because our hearts are hard. And so we must walk in obedience, but we've got to pay attention to what's going on in the heart. And then the fourth thing is we are to walk in truth. We are to walk in truth. That's why we need to be in God's Word to do all this stuff, right? Look at verse 25, just the beginning. Therefore, verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth. And the rest of chapter 4 talks about what it looks like to speak, to do false and what it looks like to live in truth. What it looks like to be in falsehood and what it looks like to be in truth. That's the rest of chapter 4. Okay? So that's our first thing, is our walk for Him. The second thing is our imitation of Him, which is chapter 5. Our imitation of Him. Let me ask you this. Do our lives compare with that of Jesus Christ? How would you answer that? Do our lives compare with how Jesus lived His life? It should. So that's what Paul tells us in chapter 5. He says in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. You should look like God. You should look like Christ. Huh. And walk in love. Just as Christ loved you and gave Himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So I ask you, do your lives compare with that of Christ? Do we, do you love others? That's what verse 2 asks us. Do you love others? Do you give yourself up for others? That's what verse 2 tells us. Do you offer yourself as a sacrifice for others? As Paul did while he's in a cell. Not thinking about himself, but thinking about the church. Are we, as verse 2 asks, are we a fragrant aroma in other people's lives? Are we a fragrant aroma in other people's lives? We are to be imitators of Him. Oftentimes, people expect from the church these things. They expect from the church to be loved. They expect from the church that the church would give themselves up for them. They expect for the church to be an offering and a sacrifice for them. They expect for the church to be a fragrant aroma. And they're right. But I would ask them, are you being that to the church? Are you being that to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? We're all to be that. We're all to be imitators of the Lord. We're all to love one another and to give ourselves up for others and to be a fragrant aroma to others. All of us. In John, I'm sorry, let me go to verse uh, 7 through 10. So in our imitation of Him, go to verse 7. Do not be partakers with them, he says, you are formerly in darkness, but now you're children as of light. Walk as children of light. And he says in verse 9, for the fruit of the light, right? This is being imitators, because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And he's the light of the world. It consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So that's another way that we imitate him, is we, we walk in goodness, we walk in righteousness, we walk in truth, which we find in God's word. But look at verse 10. I love verse 10. He says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's an ongoing battle. It's a present tense way of saying that. Trying to learn. I'm still trying to learn. It never stops. I'm trying to learn what is pleasing to Him. Are you trying to learn what's pleasing to Him? I believe you are. I believe that's why we're all here. We're trying to learn what is pleasing to Him. And I realize today some of the things that are pleasing to Him aren't the way I thought a couple years ago or a couple months ago. 
And so we continue trying to learn. And God affirms us. Paul affirms that, saying, I know you're trying to learn what is pleasing to me. Well done. John 5, verse 19, even Jesus said this. He says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Isn't that a picture of beauty? We are to be imitators of the Lord. Just like Christ was of His Father. And so with chapter 5 from verses 1 through 21 about how to be imitators of God with that in mind from the rest of Ephesians 5 from verse 22 all the way to Ephesians 6 verse 9 Paul then says knowing then what it means to be imitators of Christ that allows you to know how to be husband and wife how to be Christ and the church how to be children and parents how to be slaves and masters and so he talks about with that in mind here's how we interact with one another here's what healthy relationships look like and then lastly, chapter 6 is, and it's essentially chapter 6 starting in verse 10, but our reliance upon Him, right? So our, our walk for Him, our imitation of Him in chapter 5, and our reliance upon Him. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong who? In the Lord. And in the strength of whose might? His might. Put on whose armor? the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. His strength, verse 10 tells us, not ours. Be strong in the Lord, not your own strength. We are to be strong in the Lord. We are to put on His armor, not ours. His strength, not ours. His armor, not ours. But it's our choice, not His. We have to make a choice to do those things. Verse 10 tells the church, Paul writes, be strong. You have to do that. You have to be strong. Verse 11 says, put on. You have to do that. Verse 13 says, therefore, take up the full armor. You have to do that. Verse 14 says, stand firm. You have to do that. Verse 18 says for us to pray at all times and to be on the alert. We have to do that. We're to be strong in His power. We are to put on His armor. But we have to be strong. We have to put... Uh, put on. We have to take up. We have to stand firm. We have to pray at all times. We have to be alert. What a great book. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to close us in song. And when we're done, if you need prayer uh, from our prayer team, they'll be available here in the corner after service. Thank you, guys. Uh, let's pray. God, we, we're just blown away, Lord. You're so good to us. And when we really understand... Lord, what you've done for us, essentially in Ephesians 1 through 3, it's easy, Lord. We're inspired to live for you, to walk for you, to imitate you, and to rely upon you. That is a natural response. But we've got to understand those first three chapters as well. We've got to understand what you've done for us, how rich you are. You're so good to us so that our lives will respond appropriately and bring you glory. Lord, thank you for having your way here this morning. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said.